folks. Thanks for joining us. My name's Matt. It's great to be with you. I do encourage you, if uh, you call One Hope your, uh, your church family, then I really do encourage you to connect with our members meeting um, tomorrow night. Uh, it's not just about budget. We've got some great things to talk about, some great things to announce, and uh, yeah, it's going to be great. So do, uh, do connect with that. Well, we're going to look today at the story of David as we have continued to do. We're going to continue to look at that story, and we've been looking at that in 1 and, one and 2 Samuel. Now, again, just a reminder, why do we look at this? Why look at the story of an Israelite king that lived 3,000 years ago? Because it's not just history. It's prophecy. And in fact, these books, the first and second Samuel, belong to a group of books which in the Hebrew Bible are referred to as the former prophets. So what happened then, this is what it means for these books to be prophetic. It means that what happened then always says something about what is happening now. There's a pattern in the way that things happen that enables us to recognise the same patterns in the present. So these stories matter. They can speak powerfully into your life and about your life and help us to see the bigger picture. Now, we've been looking at the story of Saul's kingship and the rise of David. And if you look, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it doesn't matter. There's going to be plenty here uh, for you. But let me do a quick recap for the sake of those who might be unfamiliar with this material. So God's plan for the redemption of the world begins with one man, Abraham, who becomes a people, Israel, through whom God speaks to the rest of the world and calls everyone to be a part of that purpose. Now, the story of Israel in the Old Testament is therefore a prophetic message to everyone about God's purpose. Now, the person at this stage, in the stage of ancient Israel, who was to embody that divine purpose was to be the leader of the nation, the king. The king was to embody all that was different about God's people. Now, before Israel got the right king, David, they got the wrong king, Saul. And the story uses the contrast between Saul and David as a way of highlighting the difference between the worldly way and the godly way. Saul is a king like the other nations. He embodies the way of the kingdoms of the world. But by contrast, David embodies the way of the kingdom. Now, there are two biblical symbols that serve to illustrate really well the difference between the worldly way and the godly way. And that is, first of all, the Tower of Babel on the one hand and the tabernacle or the temple on the other. The story of the Tower of Babel is told in Genesis chapter 11. Here we see a people united together to create a powerful city-state with a great tower to, as it says there, to make a name for themselves. Now, Babel is, of course, identified with Babylon, which throughout the Bible, culminating in the book of Revelation, is a symbol of rebellious world, the rebellious world system. Now, the the tower is kind of a symbol of human pride, independent human identity and power. It's human beings striving to be gods and reaching up to heaven by means of human effort. In contrast to this, in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, we're introduced to the tabernacle, 
which later becomes the temple. Now this contrasts to Babel in that it's not a monument to human power, but a symbol of God's power and glory. Now the Tower of Babel was built for human beings to reach up to heaven, but the tabernacle was seen as a meeting place with a God who comes down to us. The tower was a monument to man. The temple was a habitation of God. The tower is there to impress. The temple is there to bless. The tower is a symbol of what we create in our pride. And the temple is a symbol of what we receive in humility. Now, Saul and what has this got to do with Saul, the story of Saul and David? Well, Saul and David, in quite a remarkable way, embody the difference between these two symbols. And these two symbols are actually a really interesting way to look at this story. Saul sets out to build the kingdom of Israel in a worldly way, into a kind of Tower of Babel. But David's heart is to build the kingdom of Israel to be a habitation of God. Well, let's look at how this is borne out in the story. And I hope you're reading this story for yourself. I really do encourage you uh, to read through uh, this story for yourself. And I'll just be uh, talking about the story generally and then uh, focusing on a couple of different sections. Now, this is initially symbolised, this, you know, tower and temple theme is initially symbolised in the physical differences between Saul and David when they come together in the story. Saul is a large and impressive man. He's a towering figure. He's a head taller than the others. He overshadows. He's a soldier. In contrast, remember the book's all about contrasts, David is a boy. He's a shepherd, which was the humblest of occupations. And he is a musician, which was in that time, always associated with worship. Again, an act of humility. Saul is the military man who rises up in human power. David is the worshipper who bows down to divine power. Saul is the symbol of human pride in this story. And David, the symbol of humility. Now, the upshot of this difference, and this is the important part, the upshot of this difference, I want you to remember this, is that the Spirit of God departs from Saul because of his pride, but remains upon David because of his humility. One of the key moments in which we see Saul's burgeoning pride manifested is in the incident that actually leads to his final deposition as king in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, to summarise the incident, Saul is charged with enacting final judgment upon the Amalekites. Now, the reason for this is important, but it's not something I'm going to go into here. Um, For this, again, I refer you to the Thrive Deeper podcast. This is like all my footnotes, all the uh, explanatory stuff is there in that podcast. So that'll help you go deeper with these stories. The, The important thing that I want to note here is that Saul fails to fully obey God's decree. He is placing himself as kings in the ancient world did, as all the other kings did, above the law. Now, when the prophet Samuel goes to confront Saul with this, the text notes something really interesting in 1 Samuel 15 verse 12. Look at this. 
Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Then when Samuel rebukes him, Saul is concerned mainly about his loss of face, his loss of honour before his soldiers. Here's what he says in verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Then after David defeats Goliath, very well-known story we looked at last week, he, um, he begins, David begins to lead Israel successfully in defeating their enemies and Saul is racked with jealousy, which actually grows into full-blown paranoia, he becomes completely paranoid, actually drives him insane. He cannot bear to be outshone. He craves that success and that recognition. Look at 1 Samuel verse 18. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get? But the kingdom. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. More from that time on, he tries to find ways to dispense with David. You know, he sends David out into battle feeling that surely this runt of the litter could never survive successive battles. He just cannot believe that this kid can survive in battles. So he sends him out again and again, but again and again, God gives David victory and it just makes it worse and worse for Saul who is racked with jealousy. Gets to the point where Saul falls into paranoia, believing that David is conspiring against him to take the kingdom. So the rest of Saul's days are spent obsessively hunting David to kill him. Actually, at one point, and this is powerfully, a very powerfully symbolic moment in 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul kills a whole town of God's priests and their families. So the high priest and the, all the priestly families men, women and children, in the belief that the town was conspiring with David. In other words, he is destroying the ministry of the tabernacle to establish his mastery of the tower. And it's this theme, Saul hunting David, that dominates the second half of the first book of Samuel. Well, the situation between Saul and David is powerfully illustrative of the relationship between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. This isn't just something that happened then between David and Saul. This is what happens. It's happening. 
is in many ways prophetic of the clash of kingdoms that will continue right to the end of this age. But it also illustrates the characteristic features of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. One is a kingdom of pride and the other of humility. Let me just define some terms here because I want to focus on this idea. Pride, now, of course, pride can have some positive connotations. We talk about being proud of our children and so forth. There is a negative sense. That's what I'm focusing on here. Its negative sense is that of rebellious and conceited self-elevation. It's characterized by independence and autonomy from God and others. Humility, in contrast, is a modest self-perception. It's not self-depreciation, but a sober recognition of one's relative weakness, dependence, and imperfection. And it's characterized by a willingness to serve and depend on God and others. Pride, according to Scripture, pride is the root of all evil. It is essentially an anti-God posture. In fact, pride was the original sin. What did Satan tempt Adam and Eve with? What was the temptation? Then you will be like God. If you eat from this tree, you will be like God. And of course, Satan tempted them with that because pride is the characteristic evil of Satan himself. This is very interesting prophecy against Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, in which Isaiah likens Babylon and the fall of Babylon to Satan and the fall of Satan. So we get some really interesting uh, information here about Satan himself. And this is what it says, Isaiah 14 from verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds and make myself like the most high. Underneath all of our other dysfunctions and bad attitudes and bad behaviours, there lies the root of pride. This is the greatest foe of the human heart. It's also, by the way, the ultimate lie. Pride is the ultimate lie. You know, the greatest lies are the ones which are closest to the truth. The greatest lies twist the greatest truths. That's why they're so compelling. Pride twists human dignity and identity into a kind of self-idolatry. That's why it's not, you know, humility isn't self-depreciation. Pride twists human dignity an identity into self-idolatry. Pride says, I'm like God. I am powerful. I'm influential. I'm inspired. And you see, all of these things are true in a sense, but pride twists that sense and it creates a powerful lie. Powerful because it twists exactly what we need the most. 
a sense of identity, significance, purpose, to be loved and valued. It twists that. And pride also feeds, not on bad things, pride feeds on good things. It takes the materials. This is what pride does. Pride takes the materials that God has given us to build a temple for his honour and his name and it uses them to build a tower for our honour and our name. The worst kind of pride, note this, the worst kind of pride uses the best kind of materials. There is no greater pride than that which takes the anointing and the gifts of God and uses them to exalt oneself. And that, folks, is the sin of Saul. That's what was so bad about Saul. People reading these stories kind of feel a bit sorry for Saul. He seems to be judged quite harshly, but he's not just any ordinary guy. He was anointed and spirit-empowered, and he took the gifts of God and he used them to build his tower, a monument in his honour. There's such a terrible sense of desecration in this. It's actually akin to the famous desecration spoken of by the prophet Daniel when he pictured a monument to human pride being erected in the temple of God. It was called the abomination that causes desolation. Spoken of in the book of Daniel, Jesus speaks about it in Matthew chapter 24. This is what happened to Saul. He harboured pride in his heart. He built an abomination in the place that was meant as a habitation of God's presence. As a result of this, Saul's heart, which was once at one point filled with God's spirit, was made desolate. Instead, he was tormented by an evil spirit. His heart became a habitation for evil rather than a habitation of God. Now, I, look, I know this sounds drastic, but this is how polarised this is. In fact, this is what we see in the story. This story of David and Saul is trying to present a polarised picture of the worldly way, the worldly agenda, and that of the kingdom of God. They are, they are completely different directions. The world says, rise up, but rise up. But God says, stoop down and raise others up. So listen, pay attention, you who are filled with the good things of God. Pay attention, you who love God and are zealous for His name. There is nothing that Satan wants to exploit and plunder more than your spiritual gifts and your zeal for God. There is nothing more demonic than spiritual gifts and religious zeal in a proud heart. It's the abomination that causes desolation. No one was more zealous for God in Jesus' day than the scribes and the Pharisees. 
but their zeal and the purity of life they maintained made them proud. And Jesus told them that as a result, they, you can look this up in Matthew chapter 12, that they were more demonized than the very demoniacs that they sought to heal. So too, King Saul's pride was so great precisely because there was a real anointing on his life. Spiritual pride. It's the greatest tragedy because it involves the twisting and plundering of the best things in a person's life. I have seen people with such an anointing on their life, with such a sense of calling and spiritual gifting, nevertheless fall to this demonic temptation. They start to feel entitled to be heard and listened to. They feel that the, you know, the church isn't quite good enough for them. It's falling short and they won't submit to anyone because they feel that they've got a greater anointing. And much of this is actually true in a sense. They do have something to share. The church is, of course, always imperfect and they probably do have a greater anointing. Each generation should have a greater measure than the generation before. That's kingdom growth. But do you see how these things can get twisted? And I tell you what, young, zealous people are particularly vulnerable to this. The tempter comes to them and says, you don't need to submit to those old fogies. You've got a fresh and greater, they're just quenching your spirit. You've got nothing to learn from them. Run ahead, run ahead, get out from under them. They're just gonna hold you down. And so they step out from under authority and under spiritual covering and their proud hearts become host to Lord knows what. It's one of the greatest tragedies Please get this. It isn't the bad things in your life that Satan wants to exploit the most. It's the good things. Most of all, your zeal, your anointing, your gifts, just like Saul. He wants to, Satan wants to plunder the best things. So if you have good things in your life, you are going to need to defend them vigilantly. And the greatest defence, the greatest defence is humility. Satan can't work with a humble heart. Humility is the very dichotomy of everything that there is. There's nothing for him to grip onto in a humble heart. You need to seek humility like your life depend on it, because your life does depend on it. You need to seek humility like most people seek to be recognised and honoured and promoted. The natural man, again, the natural man says, rise up, rise up. Now you need to fight this and say, no, 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 no. I'm going to stoop down and raise up. Like look for ways to serve and submit to others. Like look for it, like your life depended on it because all that is good within you does depend on it. This will be your best defence against pride. But there's really only one way to kill pride, to bring pride into a long, slow death, and it will be a long, slow death. 
I came to this realization at a very important moment in my life, you know, when I peeled back, I should say God kind of peeled back the layers of sin and dysfunctionality and, you know, all the moral, all the moral stuff. And I came to this bedrock of pride that encased the core of my being. And I knew it was so great. I, I, I can remember thinking, I can't beat this. I cannot beat this. I felt like it would always be there. It would always rise up and feed on the good things that God would give me. And I can remember that moment. You know, it's like it was this moment when, you know, I was seeking more of God, but also knowing in my heart that I actually couldn't handle more of God's good things. Because I would turn that, I would take these materials and make them into a tower, such as the, the natural propensity in us. Well, maybe in me at least. And I realised in that moment, there is only one way. There's only one way to get rid of this tower. God is going to have to pull this thing down. The only way in which I'm going to genuinely diminish in the right sense is to be overpowered by the presence of God. To stand before someone infinitely greater than me. I knew that. And I begged God to break down my tower. I mean, this is... The greatest thing that God will do will be to pull down your tower and it's going to hurt sometimes. God is going to give you opportunities again and again to choose humility rather than pride and they are gold. Don't miss them. And God will gradually dismantle your tower and he will take those materials. He will use the wreckage of your tower that he dismantles and he will build a temple. I still got a long way to go, but there is both demolition and construction happening in my heart. And the one is providing the materials for the other. God is demolishing the tower and building a temple of his presence. And as he does that, I become less, his presence become great, becomes greater. And I wonder why was I ever so invested in this tower? There's so much restlessness. There's so much torment in pride. I mean, we, this is exactly what we see in the life of Saul. He was tormented. And by contrast, um, and it's exhausting, by the way, exhausting. And by contrast, there's such peace and rest in the temple. Contrast, for example, contrast Saul's torment in his pride with David's humility expressed here in Psalm 131. David says, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. 
I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. David isn't parade, he's not proudly parading his humility here. He's discovered the peace in humility and he's exhorting others to the same. What is it going to be? What are you going to build? When you go into your usual occupation tomorrow, what are you, what are you going to build there? A tower or a temple? What will it be? Because you have the opportunity to do both. A tower or a temple. I'm going to get the music team to come, come up. Thanks, guys. Listen, what sort of, what sort of church? What sort of church will we be? Listen, One Hope Church, my desire is to build not a tower, but a temple, not a monument to our anointing and gifting, but a habitation of the Holy Spirit. My desire is that God would be so present in our midst that we would become transparent. I want to, my hope is that people would go from our fellowship, not saying how good was the preaching and how good was the music. And look, of course, we will do everything to the best of our ability. We want to do that. God deserves that, our best, right? But ultimately, my hope is that people would go away, not saying how good was the music of the preaching, but how good was God. Oh, how good was God that all that we do, we would just be transparent. Let's build a temple. Let's build a habitation of God because if we want to, God will give us the materials to do so. And we will know His peace and his joy, and we will radiate the light of God. We're going to build a temple, a holy place, holy ground. Music team's going to lead us now in this beautiful song. This is holy ground. This is holy ground. We're going to create a holy place where we wait on God that we might be overshadowed by the light of His glory. Let's seek His face now. Bless you.